Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Integrity Matters by Turning to My name is Chooks, and today in the house is Kane Murdoch, who is the manager, complaints, appeals, and misconduct. Hello, Kane. Hi, Chooks. How are you, mate? Very good. I'd also just add in there that Kane is uh, the manager, complaints, appeals, and misconduct at Macquarie University. And today we're going to be looking at academic misconduct management and the big world of um, tackling contract cheating. So before we begin, um, Ken, can you tell us a bit about your academic and professional background and what excites you about the work you do at uh, uh, Macquarie University? Okay, so I'm not an academic. I'm a professional staff member. I trained as a historian. I did work as a historian for a little while. I've been working in universities for about 14 years or so. Um, I've done a range of things. I've kind of done some exec education support stuff. I was a kind of senior academic administrator for a big school of engineering. And the, I guess the, uh, the second half of my uni career is in, um, misconduct and kind of closely related matters. And so it's been a fair bit of, um, I suppose like contract cheating is the thing that I'm most I'm best known for. And so that's, I guess, generally my background, I, I'm pretty vocal when it comes to these kinds of topics. Excellent. And that's why we've got you on today. Um, and like we know, not many universities or institutions have that academic misconduct management, um, um, team. So I'm using this opportunity to, for you to share about your experience with why we need a team. So in your experience, what does this academic misconduct management and why is that important for universities or institutions that are looking to tackle all things contract cheating or manage the um misconduct cases? I think the main the main reason for a team is that we have this kind of I guess it's a traditional or historical view that cheating or misconduct or whatever you want to call it is is rare for number one. We also view it as egregious, which is still the case in, in most respects, but it is not rare. And so when there's a, a full awareness of the scope and the scale and the type of misconduct occurring in and around universities, um, it quickly becomes clear that relying on people to do this as a side piece off their desk is not really tenable as a way of effectively um, if I guess securing the university's assessment uh, against cheating fundamentally, I think that we um, it's a lot. There's a lot of wishful thinking when it comes to how much cheating is happening, and so we've we've found that having a, a team that it, it is their job, like hashtag make it someone's job, means that you actually start developing new techniques and getting a a deeper and broader understanding of, of the landscape of cheating, um, in, in a sense, and it enables us to actually work with academics more effectively as well, because people become quite siloed when they're looking at just their little kind of patch of, you know, whether it's just their school or their, their subject or their unit. Um, it's a very limiting view about what's really happening. And when you can have a kind of holistic view, it gives you a very different impression of the landscape. You did mention something about assessment security. I think my, my next question is along that line. We know that the part of the, the, the challenge with misconduct is ensuring assessment is secure. 
So what role does academic integrity and assessment security play in um, the academic misconduct management? In, in a sense, they interlink. Like if we think about um, the entire student body as a triangle, the vast majority of students will be down here in the bottom kind of half of the, the triangle or the pyramid. And these are students who are both capable of learning and they want to learn. They want to learn with integrity. And then as you go up the pyramid, right at the pointy part, that's where students are both incapable and uninterested in learning with integrity. And so a lot of the efforts we put, what we call academic integrity kind of initiatives, if you will, they're very positive and rightly so. They are designed to support and encourage those students who want to learn and can learn with integrity. But assessment security is more for the top kind of echelons of that pyramid where we know they don't have any particular interest because they will cheat if they have the opportunity. And again, this is a relatively small proportion, mm -hmm. but it's where the kind of most extreme versions of cheating arise and then they kind of profligate from there and they become normalized. And so the concern is that without assessment security, which is effectively the part that covers the top of the pyramid, it normalizes cheating to those students further down the pyramid. So students who are maybe in the middle who are fairly capable, but are more kind of ethically flexible as it were, they, they might be inclined to cheat if they believe that it's easy to get away with, that it's rewarding, you know, in terms of marks and grades and things like this. Um, so the concern is that without assessment security, we effectively don't have any downward pressure on cheating and cheating is rising. We've, we've seen this like very publicly since COVID, but it's been happening as we all know, like for thousands of years, but contract cheating in particular has been a kind of growing um, issue and things have kind of taken off since COVID. Talking about students and just leaning into your, um, your intro into contract cheating, in your professional opinion, why is there an increase in um, cases of contract cheating, especially we've just seen in the, uh, recently in the news, the HSC students? I think that like if you take HSC students and HSC is the uh, Australian highest school certificate in, in parts of Australia mm -hmm. uh, for those international viewers, but yeah. um, so senior high school students. Um, so generally speaking, those students would be capable of learning at that level. So we can kind of put aside most concerns around an inability to learn. But I think the major issue there, and it's something that I see a lot of both kind of in my work and also kind of anecdotally is that students are very focused on marks and we've trained them to be that way. As education systems, we have told them that marks are the things that you're after. And we have this kind of, you know, a hunch in our head that learning is directly analogous to marks, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. And it's specifically not the case when students cheat. So when students are aimed at marks and they're aimed at the rewards that come from marks, mm -hmm. that, you know, might make them make different decisions than they would in, a, in another circumstance. So I think that contract cheating is just 
one of those ways that students achieve that aim. So it just sounds like the, the big, the bigger conundrum there, or the big question there for institutions is how can we take away the pressure for making or getting more marks in assessment as opposed to um, doing it just because learn. If we think about kind of ideas like ungrading, ungrading in itself is to my mind, a pretty good idea. But I think the problem is that it lives in isolation often, like it's an individual subject coordinator going, I'm going to do ungrading for my subject, but it's not relieving any of the pressures from the other three subjects that a student might have in that semester. It's true. Yeah. And so what it might lead a student to do is to maximize the value they get out of those grades and not bother, bother as much with the ungraded course, because it simply doesn't pose the same risks. We're not changing the paradigm. We're not changing the way of thinking for students when we just do it in isolation. I actually think something like ungrading for, you know, an entire first year of university would untrain students to mm. an extent because simply the same rewards wouldn't be there. We, we would need some assessment security to ensure, um, that students were competent, had mastery of material after that, but, um, but I think for that first year, there needs to be a kind of a gap year in terms of those same pressures. That would require some level of work. Um, just moving on. Um, I know you're a big few of your other colleagues, including Kath Ellis, are very um, passionate about the partnership model when it comes to um, the detection, investigation, um, reporting of contract cheating. Um, now, how might technology um, support that model? for detection, reporting, and in, in the investigative process for, um, if we think about, um, different skill sets. So academics, they, they teach, they mark, they assess, they feed back to students and a central team with investigators such as myself, we have a completely different skill set. So we have certain kind of you know, legal understandings, we have an investigative mindset when it comes to finding certain things, but we're fundamentally doing different things. And I think technology is a way to, in many ways to give number one insights. So if I have to go and dig up data out of a learning management system or out of individual documents, that's a very laborious process for me where technology to me is something where I should go, I know what I'm looking for. And technology is the provider and the conduit to that. And that then when we come together as partners, so myself and Kath, for example, and we might be interviewing a student, we will have a lot more information to bring to that conversation with the student. And so in effect, technology is a way to gain insight, but also to gain efficiency into the misconduct process. Uh, sounds like a, a big tool there. Um, the other angle is we've got the technology, but and for, for Macquarie University and your team, you do have a team. I often wonder um, what in, what the staff who are involved in, in the in the investigation in the, um, the misconduct pro, uh, process how we deal with the, their well-being. So in terms of staff well-being, what are some strategies that you can share that might support staff who play an active role in academic misconduct, particularly the investigative and hearing cases? It's an interesting question, actually, 
if, if we think about it, because a lot of the things that I've heard from academics over the years about misconduct, that they felt really uncomfortable with it, you know, and it, it creates a certain relationship with students, which is undesirable to them. And, and look, I, as teachers with, and people with completely different skill sets, I can understand that. So when I think about my team or teams that I've worked with, um, number one, I think is having really solid processes and that's not to say legalistic processes, but really solid and clear processes. So people understand what they're doing and they're confident in it. Um, I think having really solid training into various detection methods, so they know exactly what they see when they see it, or alternately, they kind of know, I'm not sure what that is, but they know how to go about interrogating that. Mm. Um, because I think like the thing that, you know, it's like a sort of Damocles over an investigator like me is like, we don't want to have false, false positives. We firmly believe that we shouldn't be raising a matter with a student unless we think there's very solid evidence to go ahead. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be very clear and have everyone having consistent clarity about what that means. I think probably more specifically to your point, I've always found that having just creating enjoyable working environments, really like a really, uh, an esprit de corps is really important. If we're all working in isolation, it, it becomes a lot more um, weighty on the individual mm -hmm. where having a brain's trust that you can ask, you can test your ideas with, you can bounce off. Um, those things are really important. And the, the last thing that I would say is having a really deep respect for students, actually caring for students, wanting the best for them and wanting to, even when they've done the wrong thing to help walk with them or walk alongside them back to a place of integrity is a kind of a goal or a mission for us that I think is really important. I think if we develop a, a cynicism or contempt for students, that brings everyone down in, in a sense, like that's good for absolutely no one's well-being. I also wanted to add, um, I did interview, uh, Renee Deschmelier and Jasmine Thomas and they actually, I know Jasmine. Yeah. They talk about having, um, some form of debrief session post some of the sessions just to get people more, re um, relaxed or talk through some of the cases, because I, I do understand, uh, um, once you built a relationship with a student and when you're not taking on the other, being on the other end of a misconduct, um, hearing it's, it could, it could put you in a very un uncomfortable, um, position. so yeah, I think that's one of the strategies we also share. I guess seeing students as people. Yes. Yes. You know, genuinely seeing them and empathizing with them, even when they've done the wrong thing. But, mm -hmm. you know, I guess it, one of the things that I've found has probably benefited me personally, kind of internally is that I've failed in lots of different ways in my life. I've messed up things, not to any disastrous degree, but things that I couldn't go, I wish I did that better. Mm -hmm. And so to acknowledge that we're all capable of failure and we can all rebound or recover and improve ourselves from it and believing that students can do the same. 
All right. Um, now we know that the partnership model is, is, is one of the models that seems to be working across some universities in Australia here. And now we also know that in some parts of the Asia Pacific, um, this model hasn't even, is still in infancy or hasn't even been discovered. My next question is looking at what are some lessons you've learned um, in putting together a team that actually manages um, the misconduct and maybe share a little bit about insights in how you make um, the partnership, because this is professional staff and academics working together, um, share some insight on how you make that relationship or that partnership work. I think that showing the value of that centralized teams, let's say you're forming a brand new team and no one knows them in the university and it's how you go about generating those partnerships. It's not as if you can just walk into someone's office and go, hi, I'm here. Let's get to work. They have to understand what value you're bringing to the table. They have to be clear about what their role is and what your role is. And they have to be clear about the context in which we're working. So for example, um, if we think about a misconduct procedure or a policy, having a kind of simple, straightforward discussion with an academic about what this means for them, um, is really important. So I want this from you and I will give this to you and here's how we will proceed. It's when I think academics are very, uh, they're very busy. They're very, in many cases, overworked. And so they want to see the value in what you do. And so, um, working with someone like Kath, she's someone who like, we've brought things to the table that she didn't know about before she came across us. And similarly, she brings that academic perspective, which we don't have. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, an organic building of relationships is quite important. You can't just kind of storm in and going here we are. It's actually going out there and doing the work, developing relationships with people, understanding where they're coming from in terms of misconduct and how you can um, benefit them. And I, I'm not saying that kind of cynically. I'm saying, here's what I can bring to help try to address a problem that you're having. I think it's also looking at it as a collaborative. I think um, one of my experiences in, um, in the educational um, sector is uh, in addition to pitching um, these need for a partnership is also pitching it as an opportunity to collaborate so that we can get or meet that institutional strategic need for increasing student pension and engagement and all of that stuff. Yeah. If we think about the problem of siloing, you know, I, I'm definitely not a siloed type of person. I really like getting out there and kind of learning what other people do and learning how I can contribute and it becomes a kind of quid pro quo in some ways. But again, it's not a cynical thing. It's I can contribute to your work and you can contribute to mine and we can contribute to the greater goals of the university and, you know, of education fundamentally. Now talking about values um, there, um, is there a need to, uh, especially when, now that we're trying to tackle this wicked problem of contract, is there a need to reset students' um, values around academic integrity and how can we do that? That kind of speaks to that, you know, positive messaging stuff that we do. I actually think the, the, 
the levels, the values, the understanding is probably a better way to put it of students needs to be reset around assessment security, around the risk of engaging in misconduct. I think that's where we need the reset. I think there's a lot of modules, nearly every university or higher education provider has some kind of, you know, here's what plagiarism looks like. And you click through Moodle and you've passed the course, but yet, you know, I hazard a guess that a surprising number of students will go ahead and do things anyway. And so either that module didn't work or that student didn't take it on board. And so I think when we change the thinking of students and like we think about a student who is an hour before the deadline and, you know, they're leaving everything to the last minute and they're in a difficult spot, it's changing their thinking at that point, not when everything is easy. You know, when you're, when you're not under any pressure, it's easy to kind of go, yes, I'm a good person. I still think they're probably a good person when they make the decision to cheat, but it's under a different context with different pressures and stresses. And I think if we change that risk reward ratio in their head, because at the moment students don't consider that there's a very high risk of being detected doing any of this. And that to me is the thing that we need to change. As I said, academic integrity and assessment security, they interlink, you know, they cross each other at a certain point. I quite like, um, the courageous conversations that, um, you know, Stelfly, I've been what reading through that and I'm like, I think that's a really good approach as borrowing, having those conversations after they've been caught, I'm going to use the term caught and, um, then using that as an opportunity for them to see how the progress over time. So that's a really, uh, that's another really good approach for anyone who is watching, um, have, have a look at, um, UNSW's University of New South Wales. I'm going to have to read that out. Um, <laughs> courageous conversation. Let's change angles a little bit here. Now you currently, you're, you're working, um, in the misconduct uh, management space. And from your experience, what are some factors that affect academics' decisions formally report contract cheating? I think in, in a lot of places, academics have to do that work, whether it's the individual unit kind of coordinator or whether they pass it off to one of their close colleagues, you know, in a school or a faculty. I think there's big workload concerns. I think uh, I did some work in Ireland earlier this year and some of those academics told me that they often have to actually um, front the hearing themselves and they have to actually kind of get grilled by a barrister. And again, when we talk about skill sets, that's not really their skill set. So I think that reporting fundamentally should be something where concerns are raised. We, we kind of jump too quick to what's called allegations. I think someone raising concerns for someone else to take a second look at with fresh eyes and going, is it something worth looking into further? Is it something worth actioning? Is it provable? For example, um, I think so being able to report to a different unit is really important. I think, um, the belief that that unit will act. And so there's, I guess, trust. You know, 
when an academic goes, oh, I just put this into a, into the web form or I email it to someone and I never hear anything else. That's like a negative feedback loop. Yeah. That's just like, don't bother. So we removing negative feedback loops. So when that academic gets grilled by the barrister, that's a negative when they hear nothing of the outcome. So they might've done a whole pile of work and then sent it off and got nothing back. That's a negative. So yeah. to have a strong feedback loop, whether, and look, myself and my teams, we may comment on assessments quite a lot. We could say, look, this was an issue that we saw in that assessment. This is something for you to consider when you're redoing that assessment and when you're reviewing or overhauling the assessment. And we start developing ideas about what works and what doesn't. What are some of the things? So I won't tell teachers how to teach, how to assess, but I can tell them this thing really doesn't work. Like for example, multiple choice published question banks are a disaster for integrity. They shouldn't be used. And I'm very confident saying that, um, for reasons like students can just go and look them up on Chegg and they're already there and, you know, and so on and so on. Um, so anything like that is, I think something that we should be generating back to academics to encourage reporting. Um, just talk, talking about gathering the requirements, there's definitely the manual process and there's an automated process. And um, in substantiating contract cheating, how might academics and institutions balance the automated and uh, manual process? If we think about inputs, inputs to a contract cheating matter, um, teams like mine are best placed to do kind of bigger data dives. We generally have a higher level of access than a given academic to um, data across the university. And if we think about what an academic brings, they bring their academic judgment. So, um, Kath and I have talked about this in the past, like kind of three commandments, you know, know your students, know your material and know your course or know your subject. So they get academics, get that sense. We call it like a spidey sense. You know, there's something tingling. My, there's some, my gut is telling me there's something wrong. Dive into that, you know, go and have a look for that. Go and kind of think about what you think is wrong about this piece of work or these, you know, this student's work as a, as an entirety, and then turn that into something that we can use. So when someone just goes, I don't think this student wrote this paper that has almost nil value to us as evidence. <laughs> but when someone writes, you know, it can be just like half a page, but they're providing examples and they're providing their reasons. That is really valuable evidence that we can bring to the table. So I would say that when things are set up well, they know that a team like mine can, will go and do these other things in terms of looking at, say, for example, um, document metadata. We might look at LMS logs. We might look at other, other things. So various other forms of data. And then the academic brings their judgment and their, you know, formal opinion to the table. And also when we meet with a student, that can be very valuable. It can amount to a, a kind of viva, a kind of oral exam about what a student knows about their own work. And the academic has a unique insight into that because they're the person who's taught the course and they know the student and they know what that general level of student is capable of. 
So that's a good way for me to kind of separate those two things. That's a really nice way of balancing the, the manual automated process. And we're going to um, put a wrap to that. We're going to end by saying, make it someone, um, borrow Cap Ellis's, um hashtag, make it someone else's job. And someone's make, job. <laughs> make it someone's job. And I encourage um, that level of partnership between academic and professional staff. In cases where um, institutions do not have a team like yours, it's still, I think there's still an opportunity to, to establish uh, or work um, across different institutions and learn from there and bring it back. I tend to suspect that um, smaller institutions could do well to um, kind of have shared resources. You know, if your institution isn't big enough, you do need a certain kind of economy of scale in terms of people. And I understand that. Um, but when you can have, say, three small institutions and have people who work for each of them, they can all be sharing information as appropriate, obviously, privacy concerns and what have you. But there should be some mechanism to allow them to act just as effectively as a big um, uni or higher education provider. I'm sure there is. I'd like to say a big thank you to Kane Murdoch, who is the manager complaints, appeals, and academic misconduct at Macquarie University. Thank you, Kane. Thank you, Chooks. Nice to see you.